Welcome back to The Health Beat. A podcast created by medical students that takes the current pulse of news stories featuring public health and medical issues. I'm Ali Burgess. And I'm Neha Anand. In today's episode, I talk with fellow medical students, Terrence and Dan, about nutrition and healthy eating. Because I think it is a lot of balance for, for me, at least to be successful, being able to give myself the leeway to enjoy the foods that I do like to eat. Also, just making sure on average, for the most part, that I am eating healthy foods. People our age in their late 20s, early 30s, like might think we can always just follow a healthier, more boring diet when we're in our 40s or 50s and just live our lives right now. But even now, what we eat, whether it be alcohol or anything else, it continues to take effect. I've gone through a lot of phases in my life where I've been more strict about what I eat and following a more rigid diet or focused on, you know, a certain calorie count. But at this point in my life, I mostly try to incorporate a few general mantras. And I think that having that flexibility has been really important to remain sustainable. But first, let's break down some recent headlines. First, the number of babies born in the U.S. decreased by 4% in 2020, compared to 2019, according to census data. This is the sixth year in a row that the birth rate has declined. Potential reasons that could have contributed include more women delaying childbearing and less unintended pregnancies, as well as economic insecurity exacerbated in the last year, and the costs of healthcare, childcare, and education. Those are a lot of costs. The declining birth rate will likely shape health and economic policies in the future that either try to incentivize more births or aim to adapt to an older population. Yeah, the U.S. is definitely experiencing a big demographic shift with a greater aging population with this lower birth rate. Turning now to younger populations, another major headline is that the Pfizer vaccine for the coronavirus will likely be approved by the FDA for adolescents next week. The company's clinical trial results demonstrated 100% efficacy and robust antibody responses in participants 12 to 15 years old. Pfizer also plans to get approval for younger children, those 2 to 11 years old, in September of 2021. Yeah, and I think focusing on children at this time is really important because They've had a lot of disruptions throughout the pandemic in their schooling and having to stay at home away from their friends. And I think that it'll be really interesting to see what the impact on kids will be who haven't really had any other formative experiences other than learning how to deal with this pandemic and, you know, learning how to wear masks and sanitize and and distance themselves from other children. So I think that including them in the vaccination trials and the studies is really important. This pandemic has had a big effect on the mental health of adolescents. And so getting them vaccinated, as you said, is just one step closer to getting them to have more normalcy. And having seen some adolescents recently in the clinic, you can definitely tell that the, the pandemic is having a big effect on their day-to-day life. So speaking of vaccines, another big news item is that the Biden administration stated its support for a proposal to waive intellectual property, or IP, protections for coronavirus vaccines during the pandemic. What exactly is intellectual property and how will this impact access to the vaccine alley? 
So IP, intellectual property, it refers to creations of the mind. So inventions or other creations that are protected, usually via patents. So new brand name drugs fall under this category that are usually protected by patents that prohibit other companies from selling generic versions of those drugs. So similar to Kraft mac and cheese selling their own mac and cheese and then store brand mac and cheese selling a you know, generic version. So the argument is that if vaccines can be made generic, there will be more access, more manufacturers able to provide these vaccines and then lower resource countries may be able to rapidly produce their own vaccines rather than waiting for sufficient doses to be made by the original companies and manufacturers, such as Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and Moderna. This is an interesting approach to try to make these vaccines more accessible, but it's actually unclear whether this will actually speed up the distribution of the vaccines. The mRNA vaccines that are produced by the companies Pfizer and Moderna require special technology that most countries don't even have access to in order to manufacture them. So time will tell whether this strategy, if it works out, whether it will have an impact. And just as a friendly reminder, for those who have not gotten fully vaccinated, you can look up where vaccines are offered near you through your state website, through your county website, or even just at stores like CVS, Walmart, uh, other local stores as well. And yeah, just a reminder to get your vaccine so that we can try to reach some level of herd immunity soon. And as of May 4th, 32% of the U.S. has been fully vaccinated, which is very exciting, but we also still have a long way to go. Absolutely. So along with the pandemic and vaccination, another thing that's been at the forefront of many people's minds these past several months has been nutrition and exercise, especially as the weather warms up. I actually just learned that the quarantine 19 has become a common way for many people to refer to weight gain during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think that working from home and the added stress of this past year has definitely made me think more about eating healthily. So I'm very excited to welcome our fellow medical students, Terrence and Dan, to discuss our tips and personal experiences relating to nutrition. Hi everybody, my name is Terrence and I'm here with Ali and Dan. We're medical students at Johns Hopkins and today we're going to talk about nutrition, uh, specifically nutrition for all of you staying at home due to COVID listening to this podcast. It's a topic that comes up not only in doctor's offices, but also the media and pop culture. And before we start, I'd like to let Ali and Dan introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Allie, and I'm a third-year medical student at Hopkins. I'm excited to talk to you today about nutrition and our experience. Hey, everyone. My name is Dan. I'm a fourth-year medical student I'm going into physical medicine and rehab at Mount Sinai, and I consider myself an expert in nutrition because I took a minor in college once for it, so I clearly know a lot. Not really, but happy Definitely. to share my That's really cool. Definitely an expert. Cool. So I guess before we dive into our discussion of nutrition, I think it's just important to acknowledge there are many different barriers that can prevent people from from eating nutritious foods, including food insecurity and living in a food desert. 
for us at Hopkins, we're located in Baltimore and some of our community, unfortunately, is located in a food desert. And so for these individuals, there's no access to a lot of healthy foods and fresh produce. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that and make sure that we were cognizant of the fact that not everybody starts at the same place and has the same same access to, to eating nutritious foods. But that's also just a really large topic by itself. And so this episode of the podcast isn't going to be able to touch on those issues. But we do think it deserves its own episode in the future. So the first question that I had was, what has been everybody's experience surrounding trying to eat healthy? Yeah, I can start off with that. So I think for me, I've only recently been more consistent in following just a healthier philosophy of what I eat on a daily basis, which now is basically focusing just more on plants, more whole foods and less like red meats and processed foods. And a lot of that is just, you know, largely understanding my own family history of certain diseases and asking myself how much I really prioritize my own well-being and my own fitness. And it took a lot of just self-reflection to figure that out, what you know, it meant for me to have a healthier diet and what that ultimately leads to in regards to my future abilities to either do the things I love or kind of have this physique that I want. And I think one thing that really stood out to me during this experience is that, you know, even now I sometimes struggle with things like binge eating and just eating a lot of food, just like fast food or other unhealthy foods, which I'm sure is, you know, relatable to a lot of people. Just feeling guilty, feeling like I let myself down sometimes because of these you know, instances. And part of my journey is learning how to forgive myself when I do stray from my normal diet and not spiraling down a bad sense of thinking. So I think now the journey is never over and I'm very happy to, to continue kind of building on that experience. Yeah, for me, that kind of brings up uh, this point that I've noticed for myself in that eating healthy and exercising really go far beyond impact on my body. It has a huge impact on my mind too, and my stress levels and mental health. And I think that has been a part of my own experience working on eating healthily. I really love cooking. And I found that when I'm incorporating healthy options into my cooking routine, I feel a lot more grounded. And this is pretty interesting from a scientific standpoint, too, because your gastrointestinal tract, your GI tract, is actually responsible for producing 95% of the serotonin in your body, which is the neurotransmitter that helps regulate sleep, appetite, your mood. Studies have actually compared the traditional diets like Mediterranean or Japanese diets to a typical uh, Western diet. And they've shown that the risk of depression is a lot lower in those who eat a traditional diet. And so some of the, the science that is working to figure out kind of how diet plays a role in mental health is accounting for this difference because of the large amount of processed foods in the Western diet and traditional diets that have high vegetables produced, unprocessed greens lead to better bacteria in your GI tract, which can influence the amount of serotonin and inflammation throughout your body. So I think that's kind of interesting from a scientific perspective and also just personally how I eat and how I take care of myself really impacts how I feel day to day. For me, my experience eating healthy, I think started mostly after going to college. At that time, I was on a meal plan away from home. And so that experience sort of made me have to choose, okay, what am I going to eat today? 
and made me in charge of like all the three meals I was going to eat. And so I would agree with a lot of what Ali and, and Dan had said, like a lot of the changes that I made were, were eating less processed foods, consuming less red meat and opting for like chicken and fish whenever possible. But I think I didn't really do that until I had to, to be in the driver's seat, taking responsibility for my own diet. And after college, when I had to cook for myself, I tried to be as, as mindful as possible of those things. That being said, it's harder when I think you're in school, sometimes you're busy and when you're in a dorm setting. And so that was, was difficult. But I, I think part of what, what I've learned from sort of my healthy eating experience is that like, it's okay if I let myself, you know, eat some ice cream and treat myself because I think it is a lot of balance for, for me, at least to be successful, being able to give myself the leeway to enjoy the foods that I do like to eat, but also just making sure on average, for the most part that I am eating healthy foods. And so the next question that I was wondering, what are some key points we should keep in mind when we're trying to keep a healthy diet. And I'm happy to, to start off with this one. When I was preparing for the podcast, I, I knew sort of like the basic tenets, like, you know, less processed foods, less red meat is better for you, less salt, less fat, but I wasn't exactly sure what the sort of guidelines for America would be. And so I looked up the, the dietary guidelines and they release it every five years. So the most recent recent release was for 2020 to 2025. And they broke it down pretty simply into four takeaways that I think would be helpful for our listeners to hear. The first is just to follow a healthy diet pattern at every stage of life to make sure that it's like consistent throughout your whole life. The second takeaway is to customize and to enjoy nutrient-dense food and beverages to reflect your personal preferences, cultural traditions, and budgetary considerations. And I actually really like that second point because it acknowledges the fact that, you know, we all start in different places and have access to different things and are part of different cultures. And when it comes to food and food is a large part of people's cultures. And so making sure that, you know, we're respecting those boundaries. The third takeaway is to focus on meeting food group needs with nutrients, dense food and beverages and to stay within calorie limits. And the last takeaway was just to limit food and beverages that are high in added sugars, saturated fat and sodium, and to limit alcoholic beverages. Yeah, and I like to actually touch on like points one and two, which I think are like especially important. Like one, I think a lot of people our age in their late 20s, early 30s, like might think we can always just follow a healthier, more boring diet when we're in our 40s or 50s and just live our lives right now. But even now, what we eat, whether it be alcohol or anything else, it continues to take effect on our organs, you know, after sclerotic plaque in our, you know, arteries. And these changes begin really early. And I think it kind of stresses the point that even if we, you know, feel like we're young, we should still build for the future in that way. And in regards to like customizing, uh, and enjoying your food. I think having your food taste good is one of the most important things to stay consistent with a diet because like no one wants to have a boring diet and there's ways to make, you know, a healthy diet much more, you know, filling and enjoyable. And just to go back in terms of nutrient dense foods, I realized that I, I didn't define that for everybody, but basically um, what the guidelines say for nutrient dense foods are uh, foods that provide vitamins, minerals, and other like health-promoting components that don't have a lot of added sugars, saturated fat, and sodium. And so I think what they're getting at is like less processed foods. And so some of those examples are like 
vegetables of all types, like your dark greens, your red and oranges, beans, peas, lentils, fruits, especially whole fruits, whole grains, fat-free and low-fat dairy, yogurt, cheese, milk, and protein foods, such as lean meats, poultry, eggs, seafood, beans, peas, and lentils, nuts, seasoned soy products, and also just oils too, which include like vegetable oils and those that are in seafood and nuts as well. But the what makes me really happy when seeing that list is that it's pretty comprehensive and there's a lot that you can do with that to make your, your meal really exciting. So one thing that we brought up earlier is to focus on staying within calorie limits. So I'm curious how calorie recommendations work for individuals and where a lot of that research came from. Yeah, I can start just with what the, the American guidelines have said. What I found was that they recommend for females age 19 to 30 to intake between 1,800 to 2,400 calories a day for males in this age group to intake 2,400 to 3,000 calories a day. And it noted that the calorie needs for adults ages 31 to 59 are generally a bit lower. Right. So from my experience, you know, like I think a lot of these recommendations allow you to ballpark from like a public health standpoint. And maybe for those who want to see where they're baseline caloric intake may compare. And so what does that mean from making our own personalized decisions about our daily diet, what to include and what not to include? I think it's a lot more useful if, you know, you spend a day and it doesn't have to be like every single day, just spend one or two days figuring out how much you eat in regards to your calorie intake. And once you figure that out, making adjustments based on what your goals might be. And so, uh, for example, if you're eating like 2,500 to 3,000 calories a day and your goal is to lose weight gradually throughout the next few weeks, decreasing your intake by like 200, 300 calories per day and allowing yourself to kind of gradually have a more consistent diet over time, as opposed to following a rigid caloric uh, range. And, you know, your body is already set at like a weight that's, you know, dependent on your caloric intake over time already. So any change that you make, whether it be on a surplus or a decline that is gradual, you'll see results in kind of what your goals are. And this is a lot better than doing things like really extreme forms of dieting or cutting your calories by like 2000 calories per day and trying to really force these changes in a very short amount of time. And so we also acknowledge that, you know, calorie counting can be difficult. And so, you know, there are people who do it, you know, every day and they find it as like a, you know, okay experience. But again, it could be as simple as eliminating like one snack or one thing that you know is, isn't good for your body or it has a high caloric load. So yeah, you know, a lot of it is listening to your body and making changes that are personalized to your lifestyle and what you have been doing. And just to add on to that, I think there are a lot of different calorie counters out there, just like smartphone apps that people can use if you are thinking about uh, needing to get that ballpark caloric intake and or also just or just to measure what currently how many calories you're currently eating. Those apps can be helpful. And I very much agree with what Dan was saying that calorie counting can be very difficult. I tried to do it last year and it was difficult for me just because. A lot of the the calories were difficult to calculate in the sense that I also enjoy, like Ali, I really enjoy cooking. And so cooking a lot of 
home cooked meals, it's difficult to know like how much meat is exactly on my plate at this meal and to, to be able to input that into the calculator. The good thing is that many of these caloric calculator apps have pre-stored information inside, either from other users or from itself. And so I, my method was just to, to guesstimate and to use the calorie and nutrition information that the app provided. And then that gave me a ballpark number of the amount of calories I was eating. But I think if, if you do want to be very exact, you could invest in, in a scale. But I think a lot of the times, if you just need a ballpark, these apps can be helpful. And one other thing I wanted to mention was I was talking to some friends about calorie counting, and they actually brought up a good point is that sometimes calorie counting can be detrimental to people's health just because they're so focused on the number. And so I think it's good to, to emphasize that perhaps that ballpark is really what you're aiming for most of the time and to try not to get caught up with trying to satisfy that one number because that one number doesn't reflect like your overall health. Absolutely. So I guess now that we've kind of talked about a lot of the recommendations and what we consider to be in a healthy diet from a scientific standpoint, what are some recommendations that you all have that can help our listeners choose a healthy diet from your own experience? Yeah, so I think one of the key things for sure is just being consistent. And, you know, how do you stay consistent, right? It's, you know, usually when we think about, oh, you're going to cook like a fancy meal and spend the weekend making like, you know, that really cool thing we saw on Instagram. It's when we have like that time and we have that kind of available resources to go out and get those things. And so I always think about situations when it's going to be really hard to eat healthy. Uh, and, and, you know, for people like in medical school or other industries that, that, that have really demanding hours, it's really difficult to like cook every day or uh, stay consistent. And so I think there are a couple of things you can do to stay consistent. One thing I do is just having a ton of fruits that I like uh, available just on the counter. And so they like apples, bananas, you know, clementines, berries, things that I know I can just pick up, go and eat really quickly. And for me, I'm just, you know, if you put a bag of chips in front of me, I'm going to eat all of it. Even if it's like a party pack, it's going to disappear. So <laughs> I just don't buy myself these kinds of foods. And I try my best not to like drink like sugary um, sodas or uh, juices and kind of, you know, alternatively, you know, drink things like seltzer and things like that. Other things I do is just having frozen vegetables and options available just in case, again, if I don't have the time to chop up things and like weigh out things, I can just throw some frozen vegetables, you know, in the, on a pan and cook really quickly. And also again, allowing myself a cheat day or two once in a while, you know, ordering Uber Eats or using DoorDash to, you know, make sure I'm still eating when I am really busy and, you know, and especially if I'm too tired to cook. So yeah, I think there are some ways that for me, it's been a way for me to stay consistent. And a huge part of staying consistent is also recognizing kind of what food represents and what its role is in your life, which kind of goes into this whole mental health aspect of food. And so, you know, do you stress eat? You know, is, do you feel social pressure to eat or eat a lot when you wouldn't uh, otherwise? I think kind of like reflecting on those moments and, you know, going to the core root of why we might be straying from a diet that we normally follow is going to be very beneficial for you. And I guess my parting idea is, you know, if you know, we spend so much time working on 
all these projects and these goals and a lot of them, you know, professionally oriented for our careers. But, you know, your nutrition is like one of the most important projects that you can work on. And you should really, you know, put in the, the, the work and the time into it because it will pay off dividends in the future, just like your career and all of that. So yeah, that's my two cents. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I think, Dan, you put it really well, sort of comparing or making the analogy that, you know, where we do invest a lot of time in our career or in our, or in our goals outside of nutrition, but a lot of the, but the, the foods that are um, fueling that, that progression toward those goals, it's also important making sure you have the like good fuel, good nutrition to get you there. And I thought that your um, tip about the, the frozen vegetables was, was, was really helpful. I myself do that too, just because I think frozen vegetables are very convenient, especially when you run out of fresh vegetables and like you're in a time crunch and you need, you want something healthy to eat. Like I've had to rely on frozen vegetables many times. And also I think it just like cuts down on the washing that you have to do sometimes if you are, are like busy, if you're studying for an exam, some sort of tips that I have are just like some easy switches that I've made throughout the years, looking at food groups that I know I'm going to have to buy. So I'll just tell myself, okay, when I buy it, I'll buy perhaps a like healthier version of that food. And so a good example would be like, I used to eat white rice a lot, but now when I go buy rice, rather than grab a bag of white rice, I'll get the brown rice to, to get those whole grains in. When it comes to milk, I'll opt for fat-free milk whenever possible versus like whole milk or 2%. But 2% is already like reduced fat compared to whole milk. For me, one of the easiest switches to make for healthy foods was breakfast. Because um, I found that the overnight oats was very versatile and it could be made two to three days in advance and it keeps in the fridge for about two to three days. So if you're going to make your overnight oats, you could be making breakfast for the next two days. What's your favorite <laughs> overnight oats recipe? Yeah. So I usually, when I make overnight oats, I, I usually do, so I put the oats in and I put a bit of, of Greek yogurt, which is optional. You don't have to do that, but I I like the consistency, like the thicker consistency it gives. And then put some frozen fruit and then in the milk. And sometimes if I'm feeling like, like if those fruits are more tart, then I'll put a bit of honey inside. But that that's usually my go-to. If I don't make overnight oats, I'll just make regular oatmeal and then I'll put frozen blueberries on top as well with a bit of cinnamon to spice it up a little bit. So it gets that like warm, cozy breakfast. Feeling. You're making me hungry and it's dinner time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can make that for tomorrow morning. Sure. But yeah, that I found oatmeal was just really great. It's like whole grain, has lots of fiber and also keeps me full for many hours, which I was very surprised about when I first started. So that has been super essential for me in terms of keeping my breakfast healthy. In terms of other healthy snacks, like Greek yogurt, I think is a great option. You can eat it by itself eat it with cereal. I also just like to snack on almonds as well. And um, if you can meal prep, I, that's something that I do that helps me keep on track of my diet. Just because I really like when I open the fridge and there's already food there, I don't have to worry about it. But of course, it, it does take a bit of time on the weekends. But in that sense, when I am able to meal prep, I know for like X amount of meals, I'm sort of set on, on the nutrition. Yeah, those are all great suggestions. I feel like I've gone through a lot of phases in my life where I've been more strict about what I eat and following a more rigid diet or focused on, you know, a certain calorie count. But at this point in my life, I mostly try to incorporate a few general mantras. And I think that 
having that flexibility has been really important to remain sustainable. So first, you know, I've, I've lived in Baltimore for the past eight plus years. And like Terrence was saying, it really is a food desert in some areas and it's harder to get fresh produce. So I found that belonging to this food delivery service called Hungry Harvest, they send you produce to your house and it comes every other week. And this is really great because I have a constant source of fresh fruits and vegetables and I can incorporate it into my meal planning, but it's it's super easy. And even when I don't go to the grocery store and, and have a lot of fruits and veggies, they just come to my house. So I think investing in something like that or just making sure that you know, you're pacing your grocery trips around when you when you have the need for produce is really great. Usually when I'm going to the grocery store, I spend most of my time on the perimeter because that's where a lot of the foods that are more nutritious are. So produce, the meat area, the dairy, and, you know, less time in the middle where a lot of the processed foods exist. So that is my my route in the grocery store. That's a really good observation. I I had never thought about that before, but now that you bring it up, that actually is true. Like most of the produce is on the outside. Yeah. And then by the time you go to the middle of the grocery store, you're like, well, my cart's full of all these bananas. So I can't, I can't get anything else. (laughs) And, and like Dan, I, I try not to buy a lot of uh, my own unhealthy foods, because I know if I'm going to eat out or if I'm in opportunities where, you know, there is a bag of chips in front of me, at least I'm not buying that for myself. I kind of limit what I have at home. So on the topic of eating out, I think eating in restaurants is always really hard because you have a lot less control. And so, you know, in previous times, I would try to just order the the healthiest thing on the menu, you know, get the salad with with chicken or something. And I found that sometimes that makes it just less fun to eat out and try to be social. So now what I try to do is order what I want and usually cut it in half in the beginning or, you know, have some moderation, maybe have the dressing on the side of a salad or something like that or splitting it with someone. And I think that really helps me to enjoy my time eating out, but feeling less guilty about it afterwards. And then the last thing we kind of touched on in the beginning is just keeping a log of what you eat. I think if you do this for the calorie count or just, you know, write down what you eat, it's sometimes really nice to have a sense of, you know, what your trends are when, when you are eating more unhealthy foods. And, you know, if you have a lot of snacks that add up quickly and sometimes aren't as protein or nutrient dense and they're not as filling, you kind of notice that throughout the day or week. So I I don't do this often, but sometimes I end up keeping a log of what I eat and it helps me to feel just more cognizant and, and mindful about what I'm putting into my body. Those are all really great tips. I think we're winding down toward the end of our time, but I wanted to thank Ellie and Dan for, for coming on and sharing their experiences and their, all their great insight and tips with us today. I know with the weather getting nicer and with, the sum, with summer approaching, a lot of us are going to be getting uh, more exercise outside and perhaps getting more physical activity in. And so we're actually thinking about doing um, another podcast episode on exercise. So stay tuned and thank you all for listening. Thanks for having us. If you've made it this far, you must be really interested in current health news topics. Follow us on COVID Up to Date for news headlines related to the pandemic and make sure to subscribe to The Health Beat on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you liked this episode, be sure to give us a great review and let us know what topics you want covered in the future. See you next time.